Yeah, spiritual anchor of the family, breadwinner of the family. I owe everything to my mom. And I think everybody <laughs> would say that they owe so much to their mothers. Um, so welcome to Sedaris. Uh, if you brought your Bible, go ahead and pull that out. Open up to the book of Colossians. Colossians is where we will be. If you don't have a Bible, we have some place downs at, at the ends of the rows. Go ahead and grab that one or ask your neighbor to pass it down to you and open it up to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians is a really short book, so there's no shame if you can't find it and you have to use a table of contents. It's in the New Testament part of the Bible, and that's the part of the Bible that was written after Jesus lived, died, and rose again, and as opposed to the Old Testament, which was written in the 1300 or so years up to his birth. So Colossians is where we'll be, like I said, no shame in using the table of contents to find it. Well, t- today we're going to be talking about the good news. We're, we're going to be talking about the gospel. And that means that we also have to, to realize something. We should all get on the same page about something, is that we have to realize that it, on some level it's a, a very much opposed. You'd say, oh, we call it good news. We call it the gospel. Why, why would you say it's opposed? Well, it's because the, the good news, the gospel means there's bad news. (laughs) And we're going to be unpacking some of that bad news together this morning, and and that bad news is largely opposed in in our city and in in our culture generally. And and so what we're going to do is we're just going to start off with a prayer. Because we just need to realize that as we open up the the Word of God, which alludes to this good news, this good news, that it's opposed. It, It has opposition. And uh, th- that means that I need to be able to speak it clearly uh, to you guys, and, and you guys need, need to be able to listen and, and have ears and faith to hear it. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to ask God for those things this morning, okay? Because uh, as we dive into the book of Colossians, there, there's the beautiful news of the gospel, but of course, in order to understand the good news, we have to wrap our heads around some of the hard news as well. So let, let's pray, okay? Uh, Father, right now we, we come before you to open up your word, which is life which is life to us, God. And so we ask you that, that you would send your spirit powerfully. We know that he is already here, but we ask that you would um, enable him in overwhelming measure to help us understand what's in this book today, God. God, I ask that you would, uh, that you would uh, preserve my words and have them be faithful to the message of your scriptures and of your gospel and of Jesus, God, uh, and so that people can understand, Lord. And I just ask right now that, that you would give all of us the humility, the ears to hear, not, not, not just listen this morning, God, but that we would be able to hear the scriptures that we might find a life. We thank you, and we look forward to seeing what you're going to do. Amen. So, so like I said, the book of Colossians is a small book in the New Testament, and it's really not a book at all. I don't, I don't know why we call it a book. It's actually a letter. It's a letter. It's a very short letter written by the Apostle Paul, to a church in Colossae, to a church in Colossae. And, and Colossae is actually in modern-day Turkey, and Paul was writing from Rome. You see, he had been imprisoned in Rome, and he was writing to this church in modern-day Turkey, a church that he didn't himself start, actually. So anybody who knows anything about Paul is, is Paul. Uh, one day he was very much opposed to the message of Jesus, and one day Jesus, the resurrected and risen Jesus, showed up to him, and it convinced him. I should not oppose this message. I need to get on board with this message. And so, and so Paul became a follower of Jesus. And after about 15 years of, of following Jesus and being a pastor in, in a city called Antioch, this, then he went out and he started about a dozen churches, maybe more, throughout the modern-day Turkey and modern-day Greece. But he didn't start the church in Colossae 
Okay, a guy named Epaphras did that. Uh, this guy named Epaphras actually was visiting uh, Ephesus one day, which is another church in Turkey, another city in Turkey. And Ephesus was uh, really the center of all commerce in Turkey. Epaphras was visiting there, and Paul had actually started a church there. And, and for three years, it said, he was teaching uh, about the gospel of Jesus in a school hall. So much like this, Paul's in a, a, a scenario much like this, teaching about the gospel of Jesus. Epaphras came in, he heard it as a Gentile who didn't originally believe the gospel and was convinced. He became a Christian, and, and after growing in maturity, he travels 100 miles um, east to back to his hometown of Colossa, and he says, we need a church here too. And so he had a young church, and over time, he, he started to bump into problems. He wasn't quite sure how to lead people in the truth of Jesus anymore. And so he said, you know what I need to do? I need to go back to my mentor. I need to go back to Paul and ask him what he would do in this circumstance. Surely he'll have the answer. And Paul was in prison at the time in Rome. And so Epaphras makes the journey to Rome, which would have taken months probably. And he shares with Paul what's going on at his home church back in Colossa, and then something happens. Epaphras gets thrown in prison as well. So Epaphras gets thrown in prison. I don't, we're not quite sure why. Maybe he was putting out yard signs that said, have you considered Jesus? You know, we don't know why. I mean, that could have been it. You know, that was probably it. Let's just say that was probably it, okay? And because Epaphras cannot bring Paul's message back to his home church, Paul writes a letter. Paul writes a letter to this church in fact, it's such a good letter that he loves it so much that after he writes this to Colossians, he actually pens the book of Ephesians, the letter of Ephesians. It's like right next door here to Colossians. He pens that one with kind of similar themes for all churches in the region, actually. And so he pens it to the Colossians, and it goes there. And the big idea in Paul's letter is that he himself, or is that the problems that the Colossians were facing were largely due to them not having a full understanding of what it meant that Jesus was the Christ. What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? Really, the whole book of Colossians is trying to answer that exact question. And that's why we've called this uh, sermon series uh, The Christness of Jesus, or The Christness of Christ, okay? And, and th this is a really big point. This is a really big point, because this is one thing that Paul says again and again. We have 13 of his letters that are actually preserved here in this New Testament. He probably wrote many, many more. But as you read through his letters, you find out something very interesting. This guy is a broken record. When you read him, he's always responding to the problems that Christians are facing in their lives, uh, their money problems, their relationship problems, their career problems, even racial discrimination problems, gossip problems, authority problems, their suffering. He's always writing to these problems, and he, he always says that the solution to all of these problems is to understand Jesus as the Christ. He's always pointing back to what it means for Christians to be in Christ, and that how that transforms everything that they view in their lives. And Colossians is no different. In fact, Colossians is where he goes into this the most, and that's why we are pressing into it together. Paul will tell us that Christ seeks to save, redeem, he seeks to restore and reconcile all parts of our lives. It all happens through the Christ. And so, in essence, what he's doing is he's asking people over and over again, are you going to let Jesus be your Christ? Are you going to let Jesus be your Christ or what? That's probably a great tagline that you can attach to Paul. That's his big idea. 
So um, before we get to the, the specifics, I'll, I'll just say this. I don't know what your problems are today. I'm not sure where you're coming from, but I'll say that whether you're a Christian or whether you're not a Christian, even though Paul's letter is primarily to Christians, your problems are probably a result of not letting Jesus be your Christ in that area of your life, okay? Uh, and, and so the question is, are you going to let Jesus be your Christ there or what? Will you let him be your Savior, Will you let him redeem you and your circumstances? What's your other alternative, and how's that been working for you? Have you considered Jesus the Christ? In fact, our whole Christian, our whole Christian life and experience depends upon us understanding Jesus is the Christ, okay? Because as it turns out, Christ isn't just Jesus' last name. It's not his last name but it carries a depth of information and perspective, not just about him, but about everything, about everything. The Christness of Jesus is that which bridges the gap, and Dave talked about this last week, between um, the humanity of Jesus and the deity of Jesus. What do I mean by that, okay? So the human Jesus is the Jesus. Sometimes we can conceive of this human Jesus as just a good guy who taught good things and, and lived a good life. That's the human Jesus, okay? And this uh, heavenly Jesus, this eternal son of God, we can sometimes conceive of him as this far-off deity. And what Christ does is it brings both of these things together and shows us that it touches every part of our lives. Jesus wasn't just a good guy that taught some good things. He's not just some God sitting off afar that can't really do anything. This is called transcendence. This is called eminence, close and far, brought together in Christ. And when that happens, what, what we find, when, when that truly happens in your life and, and Jesus becomes your Christ, when the Son of God becomes your Christ, everything that he said and did and does is of utmost importance to all aspects of your life. Now, that's a big promise. I get that. That's a really big promise, okay? But we're going to see that today in our, we're just going to look at one sentence in, in this book today, today, okay? So let me catch up to speed so we can dive into that sentence, okay? Last week, Dave unpacked um, verses 15 through 20. The way the Bible works is the big numbers are the chapter verses, or are the chapters, and then the small numbers before some of the words are the verses. And in verses 15 through 20, what we have here is this um, hymn, this old Christian first century hymn, that Paul elaborated on, that he elaborated on to bring out these Christ elements of Jesus. He elaborated on it. And in the first half of it, he showed how Jesus as the Christ means that he's this powerful cosmic being that created everything and everything's created for him and he's in charge of all of it. And in the second half, he talks about what Christ's purposes are for creation. And let's just read that real quick. It's in verse 19. So chapter 1, big 1, 19, little 19. For in him, that is for in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So, so the big idea of this hymn is that the purpose of this cosmic and powerful Christ is to reconcile or to bring back all things to God. And where are all these things that Paul is talking about? Right there in verse 20, it says that they're on earth and in heaven. And heaven and earth, are it's a theme that'll come up time and time again in the book of Colossians. It's a very crucial theme, and we talked about it in the first week, and I'm just going to give you a brief understanding of it, because the way that we conceptualize of heaven and earth sometimes can be a little bit misconstrued. 
So, so it goes like this. Heaven is this ultimate reality, okay? It's this ultimate reality where God is with a created angelic beings. And when he created the universe, it wasn't just someplace off to the side. We don't have heaven over here and then the universe and the earth over here or maybe the heaven up here and, and the earth and the universe down here. In fact, a better way to understand it is that the universe kind of exists as a subsection of heaven. Okay, it's a subsection of heaven or you could call it um, physical heaven, okay? This is kind of where the physicality of heaven is. Scripture talks about heaven in terms of where God reigns or where he's king, where he's in control. Think about uh, Jesus's uh, prayer that he taught his disciples to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this kingdom coming, wherever a king would reign, is where God's will would be done, okay? So wherever God is reigning is actually where we would call his kingdom or heaven. So everything is heaven at one point, including kind of heaven and earth, uh, the earth and universe, that's kind of the physical part of it, until at one point in time, there's a spiritual being that inspired a rebellion and a coup against God. Scripture calls him Satan. And he inspires many of the angels to come along with him in this coup, okay? And what happens at that point is God casts him out of the immaterial heaven and into the created order. That's where Satan and what the Bible calls them evil spirits or demons exist moving forward. And what they do when they get here is they try to entice humanity to participate in their rebellion against God. And this is Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve consent to this rebellion. And because of this rebellion, this universe, this created order, now exists as this cancerous tumor. That this little rebellious outpost to, to where God's ultimate rule is. And this is the key. So God leaves. So God leaves. There's something about this God in his perfection and in his holiness. When, when he's in the presence of rebellion and he's in the presence of sin, he consumes that which is imperfect altogether. And so he leaves. Why? Not, not, not to forsake us, but in order in his grace that we might be able to exist and not spontaneously combust. So I'm going to press pause here. I just said some things that might surprise you a bit as a 21st century intellectual. I get that, okay? That Satan exists, that he has this spiritual army, that God banished him and this army to earth, that it's their goal to inspire human rebellion. Now, these, these realities are presented to us time and time again throughout all of the scriptures. Um, they're the realities that Paul has in mind as he's penning Colossians. They're the reality that the church has, for the most part, leaned into for the past 2,000 years. These realities have been largely embraced and form really the foundation of how Christians think about reality. I'm not going to get into kind of the Satan and the demon stuff today. Paul actually addresses that later in Colossians. We'll get to that. But we're going to focus on what does it mean that God left? What does it mean that God left, that the fullness of God left. Because I say the fullness because he didn't leave altogether in some way. In some way, we still say that, oh, God is still here, but, but he isn't here in the fullness that he once was before this rebellion happened. He's not ruling in the way that he once did before this rebellion happened against him, okay? When the scriptures tell us that he walked right alongside Adam and Eve. And the question is, well, why focus on that? Well, because of the verses we just read. Verse 19 says, For in Christ the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 
And, and because God came, comes back in his fullness to reconcile, is what it says in verse 20, all things in heaven and on earth back to him. And in the next sentence, that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time today, Paul takes the huge cosmic purpose of Christ to reconcile all of heaven and all of earth back to God, and he personalizes it. He says, this is actually about you, Colossians. You are humanity that exists in this, as under the umbrella of all, under all of heaven and all of earth. This is about you, and so, and this is about us. This is about Christians as well. This reconciliation extends to people is what we learn. So let's just read our sentence together and then we'll work through it. This is what Paul said. He said, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So you were once alienated, Paul says. And the question is, who were you alienated from? Who were you estranged from? Well, the context is really clear. It's we were alienated from God. You were once alienated from God. This is what Paul is saying to Christians. You were once alienated and estranged from God. And what did that look like? Well, it was because of a hostile mind that you once had, evil deed that, that led to evil deeds. Now, this is true. Every Christian that is a Christian, they say, yep, I was hostile to God before I was a Christian. Who, who, who could raise their hand and say, yep, that's me. I was hostile to God. And we'll, we'll flesh out what that means a little bit more here in a sec. But there's a hostility towards God in your mind hostile in mind, God was an enemy. God was an enemy. And, and this is actually everyone's default disposition before God before they become Christians. And, and there's lots of reasons why people make God their enemy, but it usually has to do with some aspect of that original rebellion that we, that we just talked about, that original rebellion where Adam and Eve want to seek independence. Satan comes to them and says, God doesn't really love you. What he really wants to do is just control you so he can maintain his power over you. You can figure out good and evil all on your own. Those rules are meant to control you and take life away from you and preserve it for him. Life is a zero-sum game, Satan says, and so if you let God tell you what to do, you're not going to experience life to the full. Isn't that the sentiment that a lot of people have towards the gospel of Jesus? If I were to do that, I couldn't live life to the full. Seattleites especially uh, kind of cringe and resist this idea that they cannot independently determine right and wrong on their own. Um, is anybody here on any neighborhood message boards? Me and my wife just live a, a couple blocks away um, here in, in Wallingford. So we're on the Wallingford Facebook messenger board. We're also on the next door thing. And this is what's great about the message boards. Two things happen on the message board. This is probably overly reductionistic. But for the large part, these two things are the two things that happen. The first thing is if anybody sees a cat in the neighborhood just strolling around, they will take a picture of said cat, and then they will post on these boards, does anybody know where this cat lives? There's a lost cat here. And then you'll see 50, 70 responses trying to figure out where this cat lives. It happens over and over and over again. It's really hilarious. I mean... I think maybe we're just at a time where everybody's forgotten Homeward Bound. Like, they got back. They made it back. They, that cat's going to be fine, you know? But the other thing that happens on these message boards 
is people put out their value determinations of right and wrong of what is going on in our city and in our neighborhood. And then you see them fight over it a lot. Like, I've been on Facebook for a couple years. I just got back on it like six months ago. And people still fight on Facebook, it turns out. <laughs> They're still doing it. They're still fighting on the Facebook. We long and we must be independent over our own value determinations of good and evil. It's part of our rebellious hearts. <clears throat> Excuse me, our, our rebellious hearts. Um, a helpful metaphor is the Civil War. Have you guys heard of this, this Civil War? Let me give you some background. In the election, 1860, okay? We're, we're doing a little bit of history lesson here. 1860, Abraham Lincoln is running for president. Part of his platform is he's going to prohibit slavery in the creation of any new state in the West. Any new state that, that is going to come into creation in the West, which is happening in the 1800s, slavery is not allowed. The South sees this as the writing on the wall. They're like, if Abraham Lincoln's elected, eventually he's going to try to limit slavery in our states as well. Eventually, he's going to try to make that next step. So there's some grumblings during the election cycle that some of these states might just take their toys and go home. They might leave if Abraham Lincoln is elected. Eventually, he is elected in November of 1860. And by March of 1861, that's when his inauguration was. So it took a couple extra months to get everything together. You know, no cars and such. In, his, in those like four months in between, seven states are like, we're out. They leave the union. They're done. And, and this is what Abraham Lincoln says in his inauguration. He says this. He says, in your hands, my dissatisfied countrymen, and not in mine, is the momentous issue of civil war. The government, this is, this is good, the government will not assail you. You can have no conflict without being yourselves the aggressors. We are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. You see, this is very similar to your disposition towards God before you were a Christian. You were the aggressor. You were the aggressor. Like the South wanted to hold on to racism, you wanted to hold on to your independence, so that you, and that made you hostile in mind towards God. You made God out to be your enemy, when in reality, just like good old Abe, he just wanted to be your friend. God just wants to be your friend. And as history continued, six more states joined this Confederate coalition and they decided to be the aggressors to preserve their racism. They alienated themselves from the United States. They rebelled against the government. You see, they had a hostile disposition, a hostile mind. What does that mean? Well, it was a mindset that rejected the universal application of the self-evident truths that all men are created equal and that they're all endowed by the creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, pursuit, happiness. They rejected those, the universal application of those truths. They rejected them, hostile in mind. See, those were written 95 years before when they were rejecting them. All right? And, and, and what did this lead to? It led to a host of evil deeds, didn't it? Slavery would be one of them. Racism would, would, would be all of them. And eventually, a war. And over the course of the next four years, the nation would see a war where 620,000 people died. The United States wasn't even 100 years old, and one of 50 people were killed in a bloody internal conflict. It's terrible. But here's the thing. Even though the Northern Union came in, they fought the war, and they won the war, emancipation of declaration and all that, 
the hostile mindset continued in large and continues even today. Even though the war was won, a hostile disposition to those self-evident truths or the universal application of them at least still exists today, still produces evil deeds today. Examples abound. And and it's similar with Jesus. Even though he brought peace to the world by the blood of the cross 2,000 years ago, a hostile mind that leads to evil deeds persists to this day. Well, hostile to what? Well, hostile to the truth that God has shown to humanity, that the world represents a rebellious outpost against him, that the world thinks they know how to rule creation better than God does, that it, it demands the independence to do that, actually, and the truth that a relationship with God is not the way forward. The truth is that the relationship with God is the way forward, but instead, it's largely viewed as a step backwards, or even a backwards way of viewing things. But here's what's at stake, okay? Here's what's really at stake. Our evil deeds that come from a hostile disposition towards God, they aren't just directed at him. They find expression towards one another. That's what's at stake. Our hostility towards the truth of God produces hostility towards one another. It's what has led us to fight one another, to cheat one another, to steal from one another, to lie to one another, to hurt and gossip about one another. When we all seek our own independence, there's no way we can coexist. You see that? You see that? And so Jesus Christ came that we might not be alienated from even one another, but reconciled to God, which changes us. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But do you know what the beautiful byproduct of a people reconciled to God is? They're all in one place. They're not seeking their own independence anymore. They can be reconciled to one another again. Are you going to let him be your Christ? This is what's at stake. This is what's at stake. What, do you, what else do you have to lose? Okay, so in verse 21, it's, it's very clear. Um, Christians, you were once hostile in mind, Okay doing the evil deeds. But verse 22 is the good news. We we just got through the the, the bad news. Now we're in the good news. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. You can put you after reconciled if you want to write it in your Bible, if you brought it today. He has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. Now that should seem really strange. That should surprise us. Well, why? Why? because of what we said earlier, how God left. And for some reason, back in verse 19, we see that the fullness of God was in Jesus and he showed up on earth. Anybody who's read this book that would read that line would be like, "Uh uh-oh, oh no. Here comes the elimination of the outpost. Oh no. But instead, instead, Paul says that something else happened. God sent Christ with the fullness of God, and instead of humanity being altogether destroyed, God destroyed his own son. God destroyed Christ to be reconciled with us. It's backwards. It's completely backwards. Do you see that? God's fullness comes down to earth and is in contact with a humanity that's hostile in mind before him, doing evil deeds to one another. That's us. We were hostile in mind. We've thrown off his his rule and reign. We refuse to have him tell us how to live our lives, what to value, what to love. And instead of, in the best case, um, rebuking us, putting us into some form of subjugation and leaving, he dies 
so that we can be reconciled to him. It's absolutely backwards. And, and this is the good news of the gospel of Jesus. The good news is that you lived a life that was opposed to God and rule, and instead of him eliminating you, he eliminated himself in this grand plan called reconciliation. And he's patiently waiting for you to respond. Um, are, are you familiar with this term, reconciliation? Uh, it's actually a term that Paul borrows uh, from the accounting world. In order for us to understand what this reconciliation is, it's important to see how, what he actually means by it, right? Um, it, it's a term borrowed from the accounting world. Um, I, my mom always told me, Brian, go be an accountant, because if the economy's up, if the economy's down, they always need people to count the money. Tell them how much they have, how much they don't have, okay? I didn't listen to my mother, which I'm, uh, maybe that was the wrong move. So, um, mom, if you're listening, on Mother's Day, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, but each month I do the finances here at Sedaris, so in a way, I have listened. And, and what I do uh, to do that is I take the bank statement at the end of the month, and I care, compare it to the bank statement at the end of the previous month. And I figure out how we got from point A to point B. And I look at our actual revenue, our actual expenses over the course of the month to match them up again. What am I doing there? Well, an accountant would say that I am reconciling our bank statements. I'm looking at our credits and our debits and our debits to corroborate our bank statement. But what am I really doing? I'm making these bank statements compatible with one another. I'm attempting to bring harmony to them because when I start, they're actually at odds with each other. One says we have X amount of dollars. The other says we have Y amount of dollars, okay? And, and, but I make them congruent or I bring harmony to them by providing the full story of what took place over the month. And I reconcile them in that way. It, reconciliation was, was largely a financial term until we have the New Testament and then it becomes a relational term because Paul's like, this is a relational term too, guys, between, uh, the Christians, between Christians and God. Uh, this is the notion of reconciliation that Paul says God worked in Christ's death. And so on the front end, what we have um, is the first bank statement, I guess you could say, which is that God hopes that we can live perfectly. And then over the course of our lives, what we see is as we do uh, things that fall short of that, ooh, there's a debit, it's another debit, another debit, you know, lying, cheating, stealing, all, all your typical stuff, envy, uh, hedonism, all, all these different things that debit the account. But God says that, hold up, you need to be here so that we can be with each other again. So how can this happen? How in the world can this happen? God had always promised to come back and, and live with his people once again. How can this happen? We're missing a big part of the story. Paul says that Jesus Christ takes all these debits, all these debits, and he takes them on himself on the cross. He takes them on himself on the cross, that he experiences God's wrath on the cross for those debits, that consuming fire that we talked about a little bit earlier, that Jesus takes them on himself on the cross, dies uh, quickly, and we're down here, and so we go, zip, come right back up to the top. We're reconciled with God once again. And, and this is what Paul means by reconciliation. Reconciliation happened in the flesh of Jesus by his bloody death on the cross. This is how we're made at peace with God once again. On the cross, Jesus took all the bad stuff from our accounts and put it in his, and he experienced God's eliminating fire on the cross. I just said that. Cool. Great. We're caught up to speed then. And, and the most logical question then is, why? Why? Why would ever anybody 
want to do that for people who are hostile to them. Why? So back to our Civil War metaphor. Um, What's great about the efforts of the North is that after they won the war, they started the work of reconciliation, referred to as uh, Reconstruction, right? Maybe you, you learned about this in grade school. And what's interesting about the work of the Reconstruction is that it wasn't to subjugate the South. No, the vision was to restore the South to the peace that existed between the North and the South once more. That, that, that for the South to be seen as holy and blameless once more. That they would be on an equal, reconciled playing field once again. Now, as we went to go through history, we see that probably didn't happen as exactly how Abe hoped it would have. There's a lot of ugly stories there too. But with God, it is clean. Look at this. And you who were once alienated and hostile in minds doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of the flesh, a body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is why he did it. You see, God reconciles you through Christ in order to to present you holy and blameless and above reproach where? Before him. It seems like a throwaway phrase there, but it's really what this verse is all about, that humanity and God can exist together in the same place once again. Once again, they can. We are before him. So so we can have a reconciled relationship. And as all of us are before him, we can have a reconciled relationship with one another once again. This is the great hope of the Christian gospel. This is what has fueled it, that we can be holy and blameless in the presence of God again. Now, what does this phrase above approach mean? Okay, I want to dive into this really quick because there's something happening here that's hard to see. The ESV translates it above reproach, which is vague. Um, The the NIV, which is another acronym for another Bible, um, every industry has their acronyms, right, guys? These are the Christian ones. Uh, The NIV is probably another popular, it it is another popular English translation. It does much better. It, It translates it free from accusation. Free from accusation. And it's better because it highlights the cosmic battle that Paul's talking about here in the book of Colossians. And in order to understand it, we have to understand who Satan is. Because Satan Throughout scriptures, is called the accuser, the accuser. And Satan is here in the created order. And uh, what's interesting about Satan, as you read about him in scriptures, he doesn't have that much power. He actually can't harm humanity that much. He can't kill them himself. And so what he does is he convinces them to get at odds with God. And then he goes to God and he accuses us before God, saying, you're holy, they're not. You have to eliminate them. But what Paul is saying is because we've been reconciled, now we're free from accusation. Satan can't do that to us anymore. We are reconciled to God. We are free from accusation. And and I bring this up because uh, this is often a a pastoral counseling thing that that comes up in the Christian church. Uh, When people think about God, the first thing they go to is that they feel continuously guilty and shameful for their sin. They think there's no way God can accept me. There's no way I can be in right relationship with God. And it keeps them from a a relationship with him. And maybe this is what you need to hear. Are you going to let Jesus be your Christ or what? Are you going to let him be your Christ and disarm the accuser or what? Because do you know what's happening when we let that happen? It means that we're listening to the accuser, the voice of the accuser, more than understanding our freedom in Christ and that he has reconciled us, meaning we're free from accusation. The accuser's been disarmed altogether. Okay, so so this brings us uh, to our final question that we'll ask tonight. How can I get this reconciliation? 
How do I get it? How can I be seen as holy and blameless before God and free from the accusation of Satan? Well, Paul closes all of this with an if in verse 23. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. If you continue in the faith. This is really the central thrust of the whole book of Colossians. This is what Paul is trying to help Epaphras' little church with, to help them continue in the faith which will produce gospel life and richness and joy and love and peace in their lives. And if you look at the sentence structure, uh, this if is attached to the present to you holy and blameless verb above. So in essence, it means you will only be presented holy, blameless, free from accusation before God if you continue in the faith. Now, this is really interesting, isn't it? Um, the fact that these exist in, th- these conditions that exist here, it tells us something. Paul is confronting Christians with the, um, the reality that their eventual salvation depends on remaining faithful to Christ and to the true gospel. Only by continuing in the faith can Christians find a favorable verdict from God on the day of judgment. So this is actually a big warning. This is a warning then a warning that represents the human responsibility in the salvation story. Now, now, don't get me wrong. God does preserve his people so they will be vindicated in the judgment. But at the same time, God's people are responsible to persevere in the gospel, in the hope of the gospel, if they expect to see that vindication themselves. This is heavy stuff, and Paul invites all Christians to sit in it a little bit. To sit in it. And, and, and we can't just solve this dilemma and act like it's not here. This is a major thrust of, of Paul's theology, both here and elsewhere. He says, work out your faith and, and trembling and fear, he'll say elsewhere. Whoa, how do we translate that with this God who by his grace saves everybody? But there is one thing that we can see from here. Well, there's several things. One of them is that Paul lays down conditions. He lays down conditions for salvation. In case there is uh, any misunderstanding of what's going on here, there are conditions on human responsibility to experience God's salvation. You know, Colossians 1.20 that says, And through Christ, God reconciles himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. That's the verse that a lot of Christian universalists go to that say, one day everybody's going to be saved. Why does it matter what we do really here on earth? We'll we'll all be saved at one point. If they would only just read the next sentence that provides conditions even for Christians in the community to be saved, okay? So, so Paul makes it very clear. He dispels any notion of this universalism of that was present in both his day and in ours, that everybody's going to be saved no matter what. It's a very popular notion. And, and I'll tell you this as well, though. On the other side of the coin, look at the conditions. Do you know what these conditions are not? These conditions don't say you'll be saved if you do something. They don't say that. These conditions don't say uh, you'll be saved if you don't do things. They don't say that either. He doesn't say that after we let Jesus be our Christ, we must do good things, that we must reject bad things in order to be accepted by God. No, our acceptance before God is completely ear... uh, I lost my spot, sorry. Our reconciliation reconciliation is independent and irrespective of our actions. 
So in that way, religion is left behind as well. Religion is gone. So a secular option is gone. A religious option is gone. Paul always works this way, and he always provides us a third path forward, the gospel way. This third path forward he calls continuing in the faith. Continuing in the faith. And what does that look like? Being stable and steadfast. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So what does that mean? Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Well, in essence, what it means is to hold to the truths about who Jesus is as the Christ. Paul actually just laid out those things in front of us. He just laid them out before us in the previous five verses. Do you believe that through Christ everything was created? Do you believe that through Christ he is bringing all things to himself, that he owns all things and he's seeking to reconcile all things through his power? Do you believe that these five verses are true? This high Christology that that links together the, the person of Jesus, the heavenly son of God, and the goal of the Father. Are we standing on these or not? If not, that's okay. These are some big statements. That's okay. And here at Sedaris, we're all about helping people consider whether the, Jesus' statements about him being the Christ are true or not. Are true. That, that's what we do on day in, day out basis. And, and so if you're not there yet, that's fine. We're so glad that you're here. And so right now, I think that the way forward for all of us is, is just to ask Christians and non-Christians alike, are you going to let Jesus be your Christ? Are you going to let him be your Christ? What's your plan B? Think of all the, 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 the things in your life. Can you let Jesus be the Christ in that way? Now, we're talking abstractly. I get that. This is kind of top-shelf stuff, and there's tons of applications that we need to make all over our lives, our relationships, our money, our, our careers, um, everything. But this is an, Paul is inviting the Colossians, and he's going to get into the details later in this letter. Are you going to let Jesus be your Christ or what? What's your other options? What have you been leaning into? And are those working? His presupposition is they probably aren't. Are you going to let Jesus be your Christ? Let's pray. Father, we, um, we come before you, and, and we're just humbled by the fact that you would look upon us people who were once alienated, people who were once hostile in mind, which led to a host of evil deeds, and and you would come down in your fullness, and instead of rebuking us, instead of punishing us, you would give us life. God, we're we're amazed at at this love. We're amazed at at this mystery. We're we're so grateful for this grace that we receive as as a good gift, The, the mercy that you would not enact against us, and the grace that you would give us, the, the gift of full life even now, that you would let Christ be our Christ in many areas of our life so that we might find joy, peace, and serenity once again with you and with others. So I just pray for um, everybody that, has been, that was here today, God. I pray that you would protect the word of the gospel that's in their heart. Uh, we, we, we say that the enemy has no claim over that seed of your good news May it grow, may it flourish, may they continue to consider who you are as their Christ in all areas of life. Amen.